Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a sunny Tuesday in Boulder, Colorado. Before we get started, I, uh, of course, hope everyone out there is safe and healthy and that your family members are also safe if you live in a city where there is um, protests or violence right now. I obviously hope that you are um, keeping yourself safe and doing what you feel you need to do. Um, We went back and forth on whether to record a show this week. Ultimately, we decided to. I know that some other media and brands out there in the cycling space this week have been... um, also figuring out the best way forward for this. Um, you know, Fellow News Podcast, we're about cycling, bike racing, Tour de France, that type of stuff. We don't usually get into the politics of the country, and I'm not really going to get into it today, other than to say that um, we here at the Fellow News staff definitely believe in support racial equality and that everyone in this country should be treated fairly by everyone, including law enforcement. And it really, um, we've seen just another example that uh, that's not the case. And working towards equality and safety is something that um, we feel that everyone should do. Um, We have a good show coming up to you uh, for you this week. First off, Andrew Hood, James Start, and I are going to discuss some of the developments around the return to racing and the Tour de France that have come up in the last week or so. Some teams are now rolling out um, plans for how to approach training camps and rosters and which staffers are going to be going where uh, as they prepare for racing. Uh, We've also seen some discussion go on about whether or not to allow media at the Tour de France. We have some an interesting discussion about that. Um, Second half of the show, a discussion around Everesting continues. I called up Andy Van Bergen, who is the founder of Everesting. Uh, Andy is in Australia, and uh, about six years ago, he came up with the overall concept. He made a website around it, and uh, of course, Everesting has become the fad that has taken over the cycling world during the last few weeks, and Andy has some great insight into um, how he's seen it grow in popularity, um, the the origin of the rules, and yes, why he had to say no to Emmanuel Buchmann's uh, recent Everesting record that turned out to not be a record because it violated some of Everesting rules. So, uh, great chat with Andy. Um, but first, let's get to it. Andrew Hood and James Start are on the line. James, we start with you because you've been logging some serious miles on the uh-huh. bicycle. Now that restrictions have eased up in France, uh, what... Are you training for the Tour de France? What are you getting ready for? I am training for absolutely nothing. I have no goals. Hashtag just have fun. But it is fun to go out and ride your bike when you can again. And I don't know what it is about the month of May. And traditionally, it's like I've always had a little bit of break after the classics and before, say, the Dauphiné. And I always get a good lot of riding in in May. And and I once again did like a 250-mile week on the last week of May. And it just has kind of worked out that way. Um, and then I usually go away to the Dauphiné and then the tour and I don't, uh, can't do much about it. This year is going to be a little bit different. So I'm hoping to, you know, continue in that traditional bit more, but mostly it's just, you know, it feels so good to be out again after we've been pent up and, 
And, um, you know, I, I certainly, I, I certainly, I certainly being in lockdown makes you aware of, you know, how much fun it is to get out on the bike. Uh, and, and then I just, anytime, you know, the weather's good and I'm at home and I'm healthy, I'd like to be putting in miles. So I'm happy doing that. You seen a lot of other people on the roads there in France? Uh, yeah, it was interesting because I went out the day before we went in lockdown. I did this, my sort of loop in the valley. I think I saw maybe five individuals. I went out the Sunday after lockdown and it was like any other Sunday. And there was so many groups of 10, 15. And I was like, come on, good people. You know, cycling is one of those sports where they've said we can do it because it's on an individual basis because it is an individual sport. You don't have to do your club ride on Sunday morning. Just go out and ride. Um, that was Sunday. And during the week, it's just been, uh, you know, very small groups. I rode with one person uh, uh, this week or last week. Um, otherwise, I've just been solo, which I usually do anyway, because I just like to go out on my own time and ride my own roads and 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 um, do what I like to do. Andy, sounds like, Andy, sounds like you have been riding too, and you hit a cycling milestone in that you did your first road ride since uh, the fateful ride of June 2019, where you ended up in the hospital. Yeah, it's ironic that my first road ride back was on my, I was counting down my COVID rides in May because we've been, since about May 1st here in Spain, been able to ride outdoors, I've been hitting the gravel bike. And so every day I've been marking uh, COVID one, COVID two, three, four, all the way down the numbers. I said, well, COVID-19 on my 19th ride of since the lockdown eased, we're still under restricted hours here. Uh, I figured I'd get on the road bike. In fact, my road bike, I hadn't touched it since I crashed because uh, I need to take it in the shop because the back wheel is kind of blown out but and the front handlebar is a little bit twisted, but uh, I still rode it anyway. And man, I just figured out how much fun a road bike is. Uh, just fast, speedy taking the corners, you know, a little bit of nerves out there. And in fact, today I went back to the divot where I hit uh, back in June. It was like the weekend before the Tour de France started last year. And I went back to the scene of the crime. And this thing was, well, it's a little bit bigger than I remembered. It's, it was a good kind of six inches wide and about three or four inches deep. It just, this kind of weird divot in the middle of the road and just, you know, hit it. I was drinking a water bottle, just bad luck and went straight down. But, uh, you know, the bike cure is all. What'd you do to exercise those demons? Did you, uh, I don't know, like put up a little memorial or do a seance over it? I mean, this was the divot that caused you not just to miss the Tour de France, but I mean, months of pain as your collarbones slowly grew back together. Well, the irony is is my collarbone's still in two pieces. It never really cured. And I was supposed to get operated on uh, during this spring period, but the COVID shut everything down. So I'm still walking around with a broken collarbone nearly a year after. Um, but I do want to go there, maybe spray paint a circle around this bloody thing so other people can see it. (laughs) Um, I'm like you guys, I've been out riding by myself, mostly road riding out where I live out at uh, East of Boulder. And, and I kind of just like go and ride as hard as I can for an hour and a half and then come home and, you know, enjoy the fact that I got outside. Um, it, it, there is something about riding, even if it has to be by yourself, that just is a good reset on the day. And I hope that all of our listeners are getting their riding fill, fill in because, you know, the fact that all of our lives have been disrupted, I feel like riding a bike 
has been one of those things that has not been disrupted, at least for a lot of us here in the States. And there have been numerous reports about how the sales of bike bikes have been going up and about how, you know, people are riding more than normal indoors or outdoors. So it is a good scene. While there may not be pro racing, the fact that riding is just as popular or potentially more popular than it's ever been uh, has been something I've really appreciated seeing. It's been actually amazing. I don't know if you guys are experiencing this, but I've never had so many people calling me or emailing me going, hey, I uh, really want to get into cycling again or get a, get a new bike and, and make it part of my life again. I got my daughter a bike. She had, she had no real interest in it. And I said, look, I don't want you taking the Metro. I want you, I want to, I'd rather invest and get you some kind of bike that you will enjoy riding. We got a little city bike, and she's asking me every night, can we go out for a loop, you know, Perry by night uh, on the bikes, and we go out after dinner. Her best friend then, one of her best friends then, got almost the same bike. A friend of mine, a musician, said, hey, been kind of getting into gravel. Uh, we got roads and gravel out here. What do you think? And I helped him get a gravel bike. Another friend, just a vintage Peugeot uh, for riding around town. The number of people that are getting into cycling again has been really refreshing. It's very, I think, for me, it's one of the one of the positives about this whole thing. I don't know if you guys are experiencing that too, but it's been pretty amazing to see here. Yeah. And I mean, we've been seeing reports about how, you know, cities have been um, experimenting with, you know, alternative transportation and putting in more bike lanes and seeing if cycling is going to be a transportation method other than the usual uh, mass transit systems that takes hold. So I think we're all kind of crossing our fingers that some of the, some of the behavioral changes during this era do last even when, um, you know, shutdowns ease and we go back to some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of lifestyle that res- resembles normalcy. I guess that's a good segue into the first topic that I have for you guys, which is that you know, we've been talking a lot on the podcast about some of the tentative plans to bring races back and the schedules and whether or not we think it's good and this, that, and the other. But something that has happened in the last two weeks since we last talked is that Teams and now races are making really definite plans for coming back to racing and definite plans for the Tour de France, you know, uh, deciding what the uh, breakdown of the team is going to look like, who's going to be on what roster, you know, um, and and really pointing themselves at the races. So, Andy, you did a piece on the site this week where you looked at some of the teams and you looked at Mitchelton Scott about some of the plans that they're making for bringing coming back to racing and and. What um, what's the feedback that you're getting about the some of the strategies that these teams are employing for how to come back to racing? Yeah, since the last couple of weeks that the lockdown has eased and there's a, a tentative calendar, teams have been working on on scheduling some of their riders to these first races, kind of prioritizing what's going to be their main goals, and uh, you know just trying to reconstruct the the, the calendar from zero. And a couple of the big takeaways really are that what teams are hoping to do is to kind of create some working groups uh, within each team, kind of cluster together riders and staffers in an effort that they believe will help them kind of uh, limit their risk to perhaps any further infection of COVID-19. The idea would be that, okay, you're going to have the same Swannies, bus drivers, chefs, uh, riders, and sports directors kind of together for a, a good chunk of the season and the idea is they're going to be screened, they're going to be tested, they're going to be monitored throughout uh, this process going into the racing. So the idea would be is that all these riders and from all the different teams will be coming in, especially into the big races like the Tour. They've been together for weeks. They've gone through any possible quarantines. They've been controlled for antibodies and for 
COVID. And the idea is that it'll be kind of a, a secure little bubble that they could work within to carry them into this first part of this racing season. And that's kind of the that's kind of the rough plan that teams have kind of created, this blueprint uh, that teams have worked together with team doctors and some UCI officials, kind of dependent, like James said, on what the national governments eventually have to say. But that's how they're looking at approaching and getting back into racing, hopefully even late July. I think that's interesting because to me that stands in contrast to how things usually go, which is like, okay, yeah, you may have your classics team and you may have a couple of team leaders of the Tour de France and maybe some domestiques who know from the beginning of the season they're going to be at the Tour and they're going to be traveling together and doing build-up races together. But God, so much of what we hear from these teams is like by the time the midseason hits, like the plans that they have for specific riders or specific groups of riders have changed so many times because of injury or bad form or a crash or whatever. And so that, you know, by the time you hit the Welta or whatever, like the Welta squad is just all these people that have been kind of pieced together, maybe with one or two riders who knew they were doing the Welta at the beginning of the season. I guess that's a question I have for you, James, which is like, what I mean, like really trying to focus this certain group of riders around specific goals and they're only going to be around each other. I mean, have we seen anything like that? Do we do we typically see that in cycling? And how is this different from what we typically see about how teams plan their schedules? Well, you know, obviously this is we're, in, we're in uncharted territory in so many ways. Yeah, you've seen it sometimes. You've seen smaller groups. It's not always a training camp of the Tour de France team going to up to the mountains. It might be a, a focus group of three or four riders. And I think that's what they're trying to to recreate here. Um, but there's just there's so many unknowns. I mean, I was uh, out riding with uh, last week with Johan Ofredo, who you know, a French rider with a the Wanty team, uh, just one of how many you know, some hundreds of, of pros right now. And he just said to me, he said, "Hey, we're still two months out from our first potential race. That's essentially like the month of, of December. So you know, there's still so many unknowns. So many of the teams are just trying to get a grip on what the race schedules are going to be like. We're starting to see." The, you know, Quintana has now said he's going to ride this race or that race, the Tour de Lange, the Dauphiné. You know, what are the race schedules? What are the races these guys are going to do? And then how are they going to prepare for them? And they're, they're really, like, it's about Christmas time right now uh, for their pro peloton. They've just had to sort of reboot. So there's still so many questions. I think other than that, yeah, I think they're going to, you're just going to see the training camps happening altitude camps happening, but in much smaller numbers, much greater concentration. So they made my divide the team up into the potential Tour de France team up into three potential Tour de France teams, say the long lists, and take them all up into the mountains at different points and then compare and contrast. Um, it's just, but no, I mean, we've never really seen anything like this. Yeah, Hoodie, how does it usually work? I mean, let's say there's, you know, a squad that is preparing for the Tour de France and they know who their team leader, there may be one or two GC guys are going to be. At what point during the year are they really starting to figure out who are the, you know, the domestiques, whether or not to take a sprinter, et cetera? What's the process that's usually involved in that? Yeah, I'd say the big difference has been reducing the team from nine to eight. That's really made it a lot easier for teams just to go all in for GC or to bring a mixed squad pretty rare these days you see a team go with a a sprinter with a big gc contender so typically already in may you know you'd be seeing the big stars the dumoulins the frooms all those guys would be at altitude either at Day on the spanish canary islands or you know when the weather gets better a lot of them like to go up into the osta valley in uh, italy borneo and, and places where they can get some altitude here in the mainland europe 
or up in Spain, Sierra Nevada is a big spot. And typically, you know, it's not going to be the entire tour team in altitude. It would be, you know, Enios would have maybe four or five guys, maybe six guys as opposed to all eight. But they would be sending the main GC captains and the main top domestiques would be at altitude almost, you know, for more than a month before the tour. Um, so what we're hearing uh, from some of the teams is, you know, instead of doing those further away uh, altitude camps, and plus the fact that, you know, as James mentioned, you know, it's going to be August, September when racing starts. That means that obviously now the weather's going to be good. So, you know, you might see teams that might have gone to Tay Day, you know, they might go to Mount Etna in Sicily or up in the, the up in the high uh, Alps, of, in the Italian Alps, or even the French Alps, just because it's closer to home. Don't have to cross any borders, no flights. Uh, those are the kinds of the smaller details that I think a lot of the teams are looking at. They don't want to have guys going from one country to another and having to be risking maybe getting stopped at a border closure, you know, and not be able to get back into to France for the tour. I wonder if this change is going to make teams have to really focus in on their Tour de France goals um, before they normally would. I mean, if we are operating under the guys that like right now is the new December um, and teams are really having to choose which riders they're going to cluster together as they get ready for the Tour de France. There's no opportunity for a like, I don't know, let's say, you know, your team is going along and all of a sudden you have a rider perform really well at some of these early season stage races like Catalonia or UAE Tour. And all of a sudden you think, wow, this guy's on great form. He's young. He's ambitious. Maybe I'll send him, for, send him to the Tour de France. It seems like there might be limited opportunities for that. It might just be teams right now in, Dece- in, in the quote unquote December time are going to have to like say – we're going to the Tour de France with this goal in mind and here are these guys and we're going to build a team around, you know, sprint points or this GC rider or whatever and go for it, um, which I think that could put some teams, I don't know, not a difficult situation. I, I just think it's that seems to be potentially a different way of thinking about the Tour de France than in years past. Well, I think I think, you know, already in December, a lot of the most of the teams and most of the big riders identified their races. And the guys who said they were going to make the Tour de France their top priority, you know, by and large still are. And the teams that were going to focus on the Tour de France uh, as a GC team or as a sprint team, by and large still are. Uh, the ch- You know, a couple of changes, you know, Roman Baudet was going to experiment this year and do the Giro, but now he'll come back and do the Tour de France instead. Uh, Nibali, though, I thought maybe would shift to the to the Tour, and in the end he's uh, he's still going to focus on the, uh, on the Giro, which is actually very smart because I you know, he, I think he can he can win another Giro. Uh, there's going to be a lot of players uh, going for for the tour, obviously. Um, you know, Thibaut Pinot, uh, Lado, uh, 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 Jumbo Visma, they're all they're all doing the tour just as as they were planning to. So I don't think there's going to be that much for the tour that much uh, difference. Although, as you said, Fred, you know, without the traditional run up of five or six months, some guy that's really hot. Uh, in the springtime, might not benefit from a you know from a chance to to debut in the tour or to show himself in the tour if he wasn't already on the long on the long list. What do you guys think Sagan is going to do? I mean, he has to make this decision between the Giro d'Italia, which he said he was going to do before the season, and then the Cobble Classics because there's some overlap. Yeah, there was some report this week in in some Slovakian newspaper that said that he's going to stick to the Giro. So he's going to do uh, do the tour, and then uh, race the you know fulfill his his uh, his commitment to the Giro, race the Giro if it would be the first time. And if he does do that, 
it would mean he would miss the Northern Classics, which would now be held overlapping, of course, with the Giro. So if that's true, you know, Sagan's going to be racing in Italy and he'll miss Flanders and Robet and those other races. That's a bummer. Yeah, but it better be amazing for the Giro. I mean, everybody, so many people have said they're getting the uh, the short end of the stick here. And if they get Sagan, well, uh, that that gives that's that's going to be a whole different uh, uh, game for them. It'd be tremendous for the Giro. And I, I wouldn't put it, I wouldn't put it past Peter. I mean, he he needs new challenges. He doesn't, you know, same old same old doesn't work for a rider like like Sagan. Uh, it doesn't work for a rider like Ali Philippe. Those guys need new challenges, and the, the Giro was his new challenge. So why not? Uh, you know, we still have to see what the sponsors have to say about that, and um, and all that, but it's going to be great. You know, wherever Peter goes, it's going to be great racing. And if he doesn't do one of the classics this year, well, he doesn't do a classic. Then he'll rewrite his own, you know, continue his, his own story down in Italy. That'd be tremendous too. Yeah. I'd rather see him race Roubaix in November and get the potential for bad weather and Sagan on the cobs, but I get it. You know, he, he needs to, uh, he needs to shake it up and maybe a year off from the classics isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, moving on here, you know, we've also started to, in addition to, you know, what teams are doing, we've been starting to hear about some of the floated plans around for how the races are going to handle things on the way back. And, you know, talking about, uh, you know, cutting back on crowds and no podium ceremonies and trying to just limit the number of people at the race in general. And um, one of the ideas it sounds like is being contemplated, um, again, no official decision has been made or not, is about media, about people like us three and our access at the race and whether or not media are even going to be uh, allowed at the race or if everything is going to be done um, digitally. And... Like we, yeah, we have our own biases. I would, I, I think that media should be allowed at the race, but I can understand the um, concerns around cutting down the number of people in general and trying to keep um, grubby reporters like us from interacting with the riders. Hoodie, what are you hearing, and uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, I don't think any final decisions have been made, but I know the word is going around among the teams that they would like to see limited access to the hordes of media. Uh, as anybody you've seen on TV, it's just a scrum, especially the Tour de France. I mean, some of the other races, the media horde isn't nearly as large. But, uh, you know, uh, Peter Sagan has a big crowd of journalists around him wherever he goes. And same with Chris Froome and uh, Bernal and all these big stars. So the idea is, you know, going back to what we talked about before, about how teams are trying to create these little safe spaces, these bubbles of non-infection. One of the big fears is having riders mixing with the public and with the media. You know, is there going to be a protocol in place to test guys like us? I mean, we'll be packing, we'll be packing some germs, man. We'll be coming in from all over the world and, and without a protocol in place, it's a legitimate concern. You know, you're going to have journalists coming from all the continents and, and everywhere, you know, we come from, the conditions are going to be very different. So I think there's some legitimate concerns. You know, the question is, you know, can they create perhaps some buffer zones or some opportunities for the journalists to ask questions? But when you get into this kind of controlled access and interviews by video conferencing, it usually degenerates to pretty canned uh, question and canned answer. So it can be frustrating for the media. And I think, you know, even for the fans, you might not quite get uh, as, as many juicy stories, maybe a little less controversy. Perhaps that's maybe what uh, teams yeah, right, might want to might want to hope for because you know if a journalist is there, we're going to be asking all the questions like, "Hey, do you feel safe being here racing?" and all those kind of 
uncomfortable questions that maybe they don't want to have to answer publicly in front of their bosses who might have forced them to go to a race? Well, I think that, um, you know, obviously this is an exceptional year and who knows how it's going to play out. If any of these, you know, the, my, my question is, you know, there's, there have been pushes to, to filter and, and get and have less media and, and keep them uh, at arms bay more and more. Uh, you know, the riders stand the team buses longer. There's more and more barricades around each bus. The access is more and more limited. Uh, at the end of the day, that's going to be a, a dead end. Um, no doubt about it. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I just, I just did a story today on Bernard Hinault's 40th, uh, uh, 40th anniversary of his uh, Giro d'Italia. And he kind of saved the race, according to his director, Sil Guimard. He said, journalists didn't want to show up. Riders didn't want to show up because, it, you know, it wasn't really worth reporting on anymore. And if, so if you take journalists away over, you know, within a couple of years, it's just going to be totally canned reporting. Uh, it's just going to be Instagram pictures and uh, official press releases from teams. And what I, I think that that's, it has a very limited lifespan in the long term. So I think anything like that on the long term is a very dangerous uh, road to travel. Is it be as dangerous as trying to tell, you know, to say, okay, this year we're going to, we're going to, you know, not have fans. And then next year, well, it was pretty great. We really don't need you fans. I mean, you know, it's just not going to work in the long run. In the short run, uh, we have to find solutions. And again, uncharted territory, we don't know. Uh, and it's going to depend on the evolution of the virus. It's going to depend on what the governments decide, local, uh, national, uh, on all levels. I talked to uh, one of the directors of a small French race, the Tour de l'Anne and a story on how the, some of these small French races in August are going to be big winners. And he said, you know, we're working with our governments right now, with the local governments right now, to try to figure out what's going to be the protocol. Uh, we're going to try to have the whole bus parking zone completely blocked off to, uh, to teams and staff. The podium ceremony, all that's going to be very low scale. And he said, and then we're trying to figure out what to do with the media. Can we establish some sort of a mixed zone in between the bus parking and the start where there is a safe distance and questions are fielded some way, shape or form? We're all in the unknown right now, but, um, you know, there's, they're, they're trying, they're, the powers that be are trying to figure this out, uh, so that we can proceed sooner than later, uh, and, and have a, you know, again, have a, a season that that's appeasable for everybody. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I think that in the short term, it potentially, you know, if that is the barrier to having the Tour de France go on um, is, you know, taking out media, then okay. You know, I as a member of the media, I guess I wouldn't push back too hard on it if it was in the short term. But yeah, I mean, in the in the long term, it's I, I could see that as a real problem. I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into how the sausage is made, but, you know, there's definitely, you know, there's stories that come out of the Tour de France where a big star athlete is sitting in front of microphones and giving out quotes and, every, you know, the information is ubiquitous and it is disseminated quickly and Velo News and Cycling News and the independent, you know, the newspapers all have it and it's right there. But there's a lot of information that comes out of these big races, even the Tour de France, that is from one-on-one -on -one conversations and from talking to riders, um, you know, in the corner of the zone by the buses or talking with the team director or talking with someone else of interest that um, comes down to building those relationships with the people, you know, the fact that they know that you're, they're, you're trustworthy and what they're going to tell you is going to, you know, you're going to report it fairly, et cetera. And um, when you 
eliminate the opportunity for one-on-one or one-on-two type interactions and everything is just in front of a, a screen and a very formal situation, then I think some of the most creative and some of the most interesting stories around the Tour de France get eliminated. And you streamline the information into really sort of the the football match of it, of who's winning and who's losing, as opposed to the nuance of it, of, um, you know, the human stories and the changes in strategy. And I think some of the, you know, the types of stories that I'm most interested in reading to come out of the Tour de France. I mean, we all know who's winning and who's losing and who got dropped and who didn't have the legs to follow. And that type of information will always be there. But it's, you know, it's the type of information that caters the real serious fans that I worry could be siphoned off with, um, you know, putting serious restrictions on journalists. Yeah, I just think that uh, journalists, like, if you, if you, if you, uh, if you uh, forbid journalists uh, uh, from coming to the tour, it's going to have the same effect uh, as if you forbid fans to come to the tour. Uh, maybe this year, exceptionally, there will be some, some things put in place. If this becomes a long-term thing, it will be devastating to the, to, to the, uh, the, the profits that the tour can generate. That's all there is to it. And, you know, I mean, you, I, we love bicycle racing. And if the tour doesn't allow us to come, what are we going to do? We're going to go to some bike races that do allow us, and we're going to find great stories there. And we'll celebrate those, those races and those stories. And we'll, we'll celebrate the, the, you know, gravel and, and all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of stories in bicycle racing and cycling, um, which we can celebrate if that, if that's what we have to do. So. Last line of questioning for you guys. Um, another storyline that's starting to emerge around the return to racing is the physical shape that different that riders of different nationalities are going to be in, and the pathway back to top condition that it's going to take for them to get there. So if we look at riders in Italy and France, they lived in full lockdown for several months. They're now able to train outdoors, but it hasn't been for very long. Um, the Dutch riders and Belgian riders have been able to train this entire time. Same with Americans. And then we have the Colombians who have not just been able to train outdoors, but they've been living at high altitude and training at extremely high altitude. And as we look at these different nationalities and what they endured over the last few months, and if we deduce that, you know, now is sort of December into January and the season is beginning. My question is what, you know, are we on equal footing? I saw some quotes out there from Oliver Nason saying that it might be a peloton of two speeds. Um, what are some of the storylines and dynamics swirling around nationalities and how they're going to get ready for the Tour de France? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how different uh, nationalities come out of this. I think, as James was saying before, talking to uh, Ofredo, uh, some of the riders I've talked to, they feel like there's plenty of time still really ready to, to get back into race shape, even if it's for the Tour de France. I mean, it's still more than two months away. Uh, they're professionals, even the guys that were locked indoors, at least the ones who, you know, didn't let their weight get too far out of control and they were riding some training on the, on the, on the rollers. You know, they're professionals. They're going to be back into relatively good shape, I think. You know, even by the time for the Tour, it won't be that big of a problem. I think the larger question is, you know, the guys at, at altitude, there's also a question of uh, being too too long at altitude, and you got to wonder if, uh, if the Colombians, you know, being at altitude for that long almost can be an impediment. Uh, maybe not for the native altitude uh, dwellers, but I know if you know one of us is at altitude for six months, it's not as good as if it's an integrated part of a training program. Um, 
big question mark remains still is are there going to be quarantines coming back and how that will impact riders coming in from Australia or the United States. But having said that, I mean, the majority of the Peloton already is in Europe. I think, you know, if you guys did go back to the States and if you guys went back to Colombia and Australia, but I think uh, Mitchelton Scott said 90% of their team either lives in Andorra or Girona. So I don't think that's going to be a huge issue for too many teams. I think that uh, Andorra is a pretty good place to be right now. <laughs> you can get some altitude up there and uh, you're, you know, right next door to France. Uh, we'll see where it goes. I, uh, again, one, one thing I've been, it's been interesting, these guys got out of lockdown. What you have noticed mostly is that nobody's out there jumping into intense training and intervals and madhouse, you know, catch up. They're just like going back and doing base miles because again, uh, it's like December. It, we got two months essentially before the first race, three months before the Tour de France. So, you know, you're looking at what? This is like essentially the time away from Paris-Nice, for example. So, you know, they're going to be doing a lot of base miles in June, some maybe some altitude camps, and then starting to work in some intensity in July. But there are so many unknowns, the, the whole travel thing for the Colombians and how, how they were able to sustain what benefits they may have from, from altitude. I think... You know, I think that this tour is not going to favor any one nation or I think this tour is going to favor the experienced rider, the rider who knows himself and his body the best. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of surprises. Uh, Nyson says a, a peloton at two speeds. It might be a peloton at 10 speeds for all we know. But I think the, the guy who wins this tour is the guy who was able to figure out what his body can, you know, the best way to get his body to 100% by any means necessary, you know, Chris Froome, I think, you know, is somebody who can really make the most out of training indoors. And he's been doing a massive amounts of intensity and, and whatnot in his cave of pain or whatever you call it. A lot of riders just can't do that. So they, he's been able to, he's going to come into this period of locked out of lockdown, maybe at a better fitness level than some of these other guys. So maybe that's going to put him in a better situation because he knows his body and he's experienced and he knows how to, to work it. Um, other guys are going to be in more in an unknown and just have to sort of throw their hands up and, and do the best they can. So I think it's really going to be the, the guys, the, the most experienced guys that know their body the best uh, and have the mental toughness to, the, 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 to, to focus on the, the specific training you have to do without the racing and all the traditional points of, of what we call in France, point de repair, uh, I think is going to be the rider who's going to come up with the goods for the tour. Yeah, it's the Tour de Training. There's no Dauphiné. There's no Tour de Suisse. There's no, uh, you know, classic season. There's no uh, Lombard, you know, uh, not Lombardia, um, Catalonia. Some of these big benchmark races where these guys are sort of seeing where their fitness is. So in that respect, yeah, it it's going to be on experience and riders who are the most confident in their and experienced in their training, I feel like. Some of these guys, I'd say, are going to be going, what, 10? 12 days maximum racing. Uh, so that's really, you know, some guys are going into Paris with that. That's going to be kind of close to that sort of thing. Uh, but it's, it's going to be interesting and we'll just have to see where it goes. Well, again, it, we're only a couple months away, but the, the picture is getting a little bit clearer as we inch our way back towards 
uh, racing returning. And as we inch our way back there, we're going to be riding long miles of our own. So Andy Hood and James Starr, I will bid you to adieu to go ride your own bicycles uh, as I catch up with Andy Van Bergen from Hell's 500 and Everesting. All right, you take care. Welcome back to the Bell News Podcast. You have been following our detailed coverage of Everesting over the last few episodes here uh, at the Bell News Podcast. And we have another podcast guest who is an expert in Everesting. Um, I may say the expert in Everesting because my next guest, Andy Van Bergen, is the owner and creator of Everesting.cc, the website that has been tracking, chronicling, and giving the thumbs up and thumbs down to the Everesting attempts that we have been seeing in recent months. Andy, thanks for coming on the podcast. Fred and the Valley uh, News audience, thank you so much for having me along today. So, Andy, you are based in Melbourne, Australia. You work for Cycling Tips, which I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with, a uh, rival cycling site. Ooh, But, Andy, what you have been doing has interest beyond one cycling site, beyond two cycling sites. It's, it, it is completely swamped all the cycling sites. This Everesting thing, I described it last week like um, like Joe Exotic or Pogs or uh, Katy Perry music. You know, it's just this fad that is just like fire, like wildfire, just taking over the cycling world. It's, uh, it's, it's been really cool. Like it's, um, you know, it's been hard sort of measuring how, how it's received by people around the globe, but uh, I think well and truly, it's uh, it, it's entered the cycling lexicon. It's it's um, yeah, it, it really has entered the the common cycling vernacular now. The term it's it's interesting because you know I sort of watch it, and um, originally every time Everesting was mentioned, it would it would go something like this: Fred, it'd be Everesting, where you ride the repeats of a hill over and over to climb the hill. No longer that's the case. Like now, you just say the word Everesting, and people know exactly what it is. There's no explainer, which is to me that's really cool. How have you seen the overall awareness of Everesting change during the pandemic shutdown? Because for us, that really seems like it, that's when it's caught speed. You know, we've definitely had uh, people people in our orbit doing Everesting challenges beforehand, but really felt like that's when the overall interest in things really ratcheted up. How have you seen it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I think, um, you know, like Envelo News has been covering it from, from day dot, literally six and a half years ago when this whole thing launched. And so, but when you've been covering it, it's almost like you're covering this cultish thing, which is, you know, sort of a little bit subculture, counterculture, like happening in the background. And with uh, with the, the global pandemic, like obviously people have been forced into shutdown. We've had this thing called virtual everything on Zwift for, for a couple of years now. And uh, yeah, it, it was something that you could do that was more interesting. You could really challenge yourself uh, indoors. And uh, in those first couple of weeks of people being um, in ISO, it really picked up quite quickly. So, so to give an example, um, you know, something that would keep us busy, because this is in our spare time that, that um, we're managing it. And by we, I mean myself and my wife, Tam. It's, it's literally two of us. And uh, so 30 or 40 new submissions in a week, that would that would be a big week for us. Like we'd, we'd be pretty busy. That, that was a couple of hours worth of work and adjudication and, and uh, chatting to these people. In May alone, there's been over 1,100. I think it's 1,200 actually in May. Uh, and, and these are successful ones. It doesn't include the, the, the ones that we put in the rejected pile. Uh, and, and even in April, there was like a similar sort of amount. So it's 
truly exploded. That makes my legs hurt just thinking about it. 1,100 successful and how many other uh, unsuccessful attempts at Everesting, having watched the Instagram feed of Ruth Winder struggling along on uh, Flagstaff. I, I just, I, who are you people? Come on. <laughs> just these crazy Everesting freaks. It's sort of pleasing to, to read uh, some of the prose descriptions where they're talking about how hard this is. And like, let's be honest. I mean, when they're talking about it being hard, they're doing it at twice the speed that, that I could do it, right? But but still, like, just to, to know that they're, it's not just something they can tick off and uh, that's that's kind of pretty cool, I think. What's the origin story? Well, it all it all kind of started. I, I ran this little group, uh, and by little I do mean little. There was there was three of us basically, and we would just find excuses to to drag ourselves out of bed in the winter and go riding. And we we loved riding in the hills. We'd sort of ticked off all of the the uh, the standard fondos that you could do in our area um, over the space of a year or two, and we're kind of a little bit bored with that. So we just thought, well, we'll, we'll make our own little challenge. And so every year I'd set a little challenge for our, for our tiny little group, and the idea was it had to be something that we couldn't just go out and do the next weekend. You know, we needed a, a long base. We had to train for it. It was the reason why we'd get out of bed every winter. And if it was raining out or if it was cold or wet, it didn't really matter. Like that was the reason why you did it. And, and we did it because we had this, this common training goal. But that were big challenges. And this is of a time where, and, and you remember this as well, but like back in the day, back in the day, you could do a, a three or a 4,000 meter climb and everybody would be talking about it because that was just so off the wall, like 4,000 meters in a, in a day. Is it, are you serious? And uh, so we would do like these challenges where there might be five or 6,000 vertical meters in a day. And we've been training for this all year, of course. And it was uh, like, it's just, it's, it's so commonplace. It's so normalized now, but, but that really was something that was um, so big at the time. And uh, yeah, so, so every year we'd set ourselves a new challenge and, and by about the third or fourth year of doing this, we started to gain a bit of notoriety. There was one particular year where we did a, a 500 kilometer ride with 10,000 vertical meters and that actually gave us the, the name of the crew, which is called Hell's 500. And it was after that year that we just started getting inundated from people around the world saying, hey, I've heard of this ride and I want to come and do it with you next year. But what they didn't realize was, number one, it wasn't an official event. It was just me and a couple of buddies that at that stage, maybe there was about 15 of us. And also it wasn't like, I, I hated the idea of doing the same challenge every year. Like it needed to be fresh and exciting and creative. So, um, yeah, the, the, the thought of people coming over from the States or from the UK, or there's this guy from France that wanted to fly over and join us for one of our yearly epics. It was pretty cool, but at the same time, it was always going to be a little bit limiting. So we probably knocked back maybe 30 people uh, for that year's epic and they were really disappointed that they couldn't join us. Then the following year, it, we were just inundated. Like I literally had probably 200 people that were contacting me saying, right, I want in. How do I come and do this epic? And I, I didn't want to go down the path of permits and I wasn't interested in running an event. I've, I've run a few of those in, in, in the past and like that's not what this is about. This is about doing something creative. So I, I knew that I needed something that people could do anywhere in the world and, you know, so it wasn't geographically isolating and there was a, there's a framework, but there was flexibility that allowed it to, uh, allowed them to, to kind of, you know, take, take this challenge on in their own, in own area. And I toyed with lots of different ideas. Was it distance based or was it vertical based? And the idea of a vertical based challenge held a lot of interest for me, but see, the problem was when you and I 
would say, hey, we, we've gone and done 4,000 meters. You talk to other cyclists, they're like, wow, 4,000 meters. But what I found was after the biggest ride I'd ever done in my life, which was 300 kilometers and 6,500 vertical meters, massive day, I went into my office at work. This is back when I was in, in uh, another, another life in hotels. And I told them all about this ride. And literally the guy that I was talking to said, oh, yeah, that's nice. And, and what else did you do on the weekend? My mind was blown. I was like, this is, I trained for a year for this just about and, you know, like destroyed myself as the hardest physical thing I've ever done. And you're asking if I got up to anything else on the weekend. So I kind of knew at that point, if there was going to be some, something that we were going to create and put out there, I wanted it to be something that when I went into the office the next week, I could say what it was. And even a non-cyclist would know what that was about. So you know, I'd, I'd been toying around with these ideas and mm. there'd been ideas floating around in the ether um, and in, in the grey matter for, for a couple of years. And then I, I read this uh, article from George Mallory and uh, George Mallory is a cyclist. He's the grandson of George Herbert Lee Mallory, uh, who, you know, was the original Mount Everest hopeful. Uh, unfortunately, he, he died on the mountain, but um George Mallory had been training to also climb the height of Mount Everest. And as part of that training, he um, had, had been riding repeats of a hill to build his endurance capacity, and he ended up climbing the height of Mount Everest. Now, he didn't call it Everesting, but he, you know, it, was, it was an amazing feat. He wrote about that, um, I think it was like 2012 from memory, and, and I'd read about that and heard about it. It was just such a bonkers idea of climbing the height of Mount Everest. Here I was like this hill climber that, it was just so off the chart ridiculous, um, but it did sort of just stick in my brain. And then it all just kind of came together. Well, uh, here would be this this wonderful solution where anyone could ride the height of Everest in their own back lot, backyard, like quite literally. Um, you know, you, you could just pick one hill and it could be anywhere in the world and you just ride up and down that hill until you climb the height of Mount Everest, 29029 or 8848 if you're in meters. So, yeah. Simple, and, right? Yeah, and and how did it go when you attempted it? Well, it's it's sort of interesting because I also knew that based on our experience with some of the big rides that we'd we'd done, you know, if you, like I said, if you did a four or five thousand meter climb at that stage, like it'll get talked about everywhere. You know, we'd get published in a cycling publication or something like that. Again, again, it's kind of normalized now, but I knew that. If this is going to exist, it'd be really important for it to not just appear overnight, but I wanted it to explode uh, overnight. So I, the, those 200 hopefuls that I talked about, I said, okay, I've got a challenge for you, but the only way you're going to find out about it is you have to qualify to find out what this epic is. So you need to submit to me a ride where you've done over 5,000 meters. So first of all, there's all these people that are doing the biggest ride of their life to qualify to hear about something which they had no idea about. Uh, so they had to qualify. And then once they found out, I, I gave them the brief, but they were sworn to secrecy. We picked a, a weekend uh, in, I think it was 2014, and uh, said, right, it's this weekend. We're all going to be doing these Everestings. We had this spreadsheet going. It was all very manual. We Everyone had to pick different climbs around the globe. And in the end, I think there were about 65 of us that were crazy enough to commit to this. I got told in no uncertain terms that it was stupid, it would fail, et cetera. And yeah, then, then on this one weekend in, in, uh, you know, in early 2014, we all just set off into the night, you know, like all, all separate, um, all solo, doing this thing, sworn to secrecy. And quite literally overnight, I think there was about 
30 or 35 that were successful with that attempt. And again, you can imagine of the time, one of these rides would have gained attention, but for all of a sudden, out of the blue, that there's 35 of these things, people just like, what? What's what's going on? Where, where does this come from? And it just screwed from there. So one of the things that has been very interesting for me to follow has been um, all the pre-ride strategizing that a lot of these people are doing with their Everesting attempts with the choosing of the hill specifically, which is the right pitch, the right length, and also straight, you know, no wasted time on the switchbacks and the descents and blah, 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 blah. I mean, was that going on from day one where people like strategizing the perfect hill for Everesting or, or was it a little bit more trial and error at that point? It was definitely trial and error. And to be honest, like looking at all the records that are dropping now, which by the way, they're crazy times, like sub eight for guys and sub 10 now, women um you know lauren lauren just set a new record last night or yesterday um i I think the reality is like even even in that record setting no one's found what that perfect combination is and for me that's the exciting part about it there's there's i've read a few comments saying oh look you should just pick one hill if it's going to be a record and everyone does the same one but i disagree so much i think the beauty of this challenge is you can make it exactly what you want. If, if you're a specialist on a lower grade and you can grind out you know, a, a higher speed, then that's the grade for you. And if you're some little whippet that prefers ridiculously steep you know, 10% plus gradients, then, then go for it. But um, I, I think that's the thing that's beautiful about it. Now, like, it's, it's never really been about the speed, and it's awesome that there's people that are attempting these records, but Man, like the thing that's so cool about it is you can you can really make this what you like. You can do it on single track, or you know you can you can go and do it in beautiful scenic locations. You could do it like I said in your backyard. Like uh, yesterday, two guys ran an Everesting quite literally in their own backyard. They've got a twenty percent grade. They ran up and down this this hill uh, until they climbed the height of Everest in their house. It's crazy. Oh yeah, I, that's right. Yeah, because there's also people who are doing this by foot, which is completely insane. Um, so that, that's that's cool. You can make it your own thing and you can get creative with it. But there are still these rules and it is there's there have to be rules. There's a regimented system for how to do this. Um, first of all, like how did the rule book um, evolve where these um, stone tablets, ha- you know, handed down on high by Andy from the very beginning where the rule book you came up with still exists today or did the rules evolve? Yeah, they, they have evolved over time, and they still they're still evolving a little bit. And basically, the the core fundamental well, first of all, the, the main rules is you just pick one climb. You have to re- ride repeats of that one segment uh, until you climb the height of Mount Everest, and you can't sleep. So they're they're kind of like the fundamental rules. They're they're the, the very simple ones to understand. But then there's like additional rules, and that's just to make sure that. Um, you know, we're all, we're not here to make it easier for anyone. We're here to make, make sure that the efforts are hard and difficult. Like the whole point is not to tick the box with this challenge, but to really, you know, drive yourself and do something which is so difficult and and so foreign to to you. So yeah, the, the rules have sort of evolved and adapted. And most of the time it'll be because there's been maybe an attempt or whether intentional or not at maybe trying to soften soften the uh the path to everest if, if you will so and uh yeah it usually just gets tweaked and refined from there but but essentially the rules you see today uh are the same ones that have been there for, for six years 
That's interesting. You know, there was, I, I came back to the rules when I looked at Emmanuel Bookman's attempts. So German writer Emmanuel Bookman tried to break the record over the weekend. He did not. It, uh, his his cumulative time was actually slower. And it's cumulative time. It's not writing time. But also there was the question that, you know, he did eight laps on one climb, but in order to get there, he had done a pre-climb or he had climbed from one direction and then did the all on one direction. And that was people were, you know, ah, that doesn't count, you know, and there was part of me that was like, yeah, I know. But, you know, cumulative elevation is cumulative elevation. But what is it about that one climb? Why is that such a central element of Everesting? And, and can I just say, like, I agree. Like, oh, I saw that and I was gutted because, like, it's emu, like, you know, it was such, such a shame to, to see that one and you know that I mentioned before that we have to reject reject um, a certain percentage of these and it, it, it kills me every time we have to do that very hard because people have busted their gut to do it and for some simple rule but to explain the um you know to explain the the repeats you need to remember like this this concept has come from kind of mountaineering folklore and in mountaineering, there's this race to be the first. And with Everesting as well, you know, you get additional um, uh, kudos for, for being the first to climb your hill. If you do a subsequent one, that's awesome. It still counts, obviously. But there's something about being the first, which is just, you know, the first to climb Everest or K2 or do the seven summits or whatever it might be. Like it's always got that just a little additional uh, thing that's really cool about it. But you can't really be the first on a mountain if you're climbing multiple routes uh, or multiple hills, for example. So from, from the very start, uh, yeah, the, the whole idea was you picked one route and you just needed to, to grind away on that, that one route and you could own that. So if you think of Mount Everest itself, like you could um, summit the south face or you can summit the north face or all different permutations and they're all classed as a first or, uh, you know, think about, uh, El Cap with rock climbing, for example. There's all these different ways up, and they're all considered a, a first. D does that make sense? So, if you're riding repeats of the same section, then then therefore it's a, a, that, that's where it's kind of coming from. Um, so you must have some great stories of just brutal letdowns to people. Then people who are submitting things, and you have to you have to be the one to give them the thumbs down. I mean, without divulging names here, I mean. Share some stories of some, uh, you know, how, how have well, how have you had to let some of these people down, and what have their reactions been when they have submitted Everesting files to you, and you see something like this? Hey, you know, you didn't do your homework right. Yeah, it's um, it's it's horrible. It's a horrible, horrible feeling because like, I've done ten and a half Everestings now myself, so I know I know exactly what it takes to go through. This. I've failed a couple as well, by the way, so I know how much that hurts as well. I think the hardest thing is when people feel that they've completed it and then um, it, it becomes apparent that they've missed out by, by whatever length. Um, you, you know how gutted they are about it. So there was one example for, you know, even just a week ago where there were these three guys and, um, you know, they, they had worked it all out uh, based on their elevation, but it turns out the data that they were using was actually really poorly formed in the first place. So it had all these crazy spikes which meant that when they wrote it in real life, they weren't seeing the same elevation repeat. So they, they ended up being, I think, about 4,000 feet short, which is obviously, you know, a, a fair amount. It's, it's a couple of hours at the end of the day. And um, letting them down was horrible. And I, I picked over the, each three of those for, I don't know, I spent like maybe two hours altogether and we had a whole bunch of emails back and forwards. And I, I just wanted to reach out and like give them this hug or something. I felt so bad 
so bad. And, um, you know, to, to their credit, they've been amazing about it. And it's, it just, it feels so harsh, right, to, to, to knock people back. But, you know, the coolest thing about it is they are now so pumped with the idea of going back and doing it again and, and achieving this thing, which I don't know, like, oh, however, however impressed I am with anyone that, that is able to do this, it's like doubly so for those guys. What is the most common reason that you've had to reject an Everesting file? I'd say the most common is maybe just like a very simple misunderstanding of the rules. And I mean, at its most basic level. So people will submit to us rides where they may have climbed, you know, the, the height of Mount Everest, but in a, in a circuit or a loop. And um, it, it's just the very simple uh, core rules of Everesting. You know, you're riding repeats of the same hill. It gets rejected on on that basis. We do get a few data ones, thankfully not too many, but basically that will be where, again, someone's like picked a segment on Strava, but the actual, you you know what it's like when you get bad Strava data and it's either sending you through buildings or stuff like that. So, (laughs) I love it. You have to be, I mean, this headmaster position that you have and the fact that there are now thousands of people a month submitting this to you, I would, you know, this has to be like a second job for you at this point, Andy. It's a lot of hours. It was always a lot of hours and, and you know, I'd kind of do maybe an hour or two a night and that was enough to, to kind of keep keep on top of it all. But yeah, quite literally at the moment, Fred, honestly, I, I knock off from work and I'm straight into it. And uh, my wife and I, are, are, you know, work on this literally till, till midnight every night. But that's okay. Like, you know, the, the thing is, someone was asking me about this the other day. Number one, I'm no stranger to working hard, but um, number two, like because I'm personally touching each one that comes through, I get to read the most incredible story of something that is the hardest ride that someone's ever done in their life or, you know, something like Lauren's ride yesterday, like, you know, a new record or they've raised an incredible money, amount of money for charity or they've overcome some adversity or they've done something interesting. There was this guy that did a half Everesting all on one wheel. He did like on a road bike. He, uh, this guy out of Italy, he did half an Everesting doing a, a mono or wheelie, if you can. So there's there's so many cool stories and it is impossible not to just be addicted to the stoke that I'm feeding off. Like, are you serious? It's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> what a crew. <laughs> What's the future of it then? I mean, you have all this attention. You have these people who are putting themselves through just epic amounts of punishment in order to have their name on a list for some reason. I, you know, I have to think you may have thought about, you know, could this become a full-time job? Could this become, I don't know, what what could Everesting become? I think, like, I think about it less in terms of what it means to me individual, individually and what it means for, for the challenge because this is a community-owned challenge at the end of the day and it's the community that's the really cool part about it. I, I think, let's be honest, I mean, the pros are going to stop doing this when racing starts again. Maybe in the off-season we'll see one here and there, but that, that's cool. Like, I, I totally get that, and, and I know the reasons why they couldn't really do it before, but I think so we're going to see, you know, the pros stopping to ride it. But the great thing about it is that the pipeline now that this has opened up and, and uh, you know, the, the great thing about everything is as soon as you hear about it, you start thinking, well, that's ridiculous. And I wonder where I'd do it if I was going to do one myself. So I think, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of interest that will do it. I'd love it to see, I'd love to see it become, you know, kind of the benchmark that if you're a runner, you know, you're always going to get asked, well, have you run a marathon? Or if you're a swimmer, have you done some, some massive, I'd love that to be the thing for cycling. Okay. Well, have you done a century and have you done an Everesting? That'd be cool. 
I think there's a big gap between uh, a century and an Everesting. Um, what, um, before I let you go, Andy, I mean, you've looked at all these files and talked to, and, and, you know, emailed back and forth with all these people. What are some examples of some of the freakier Everesting um, successful ones that you've seen? Some of the ones that really just boggle your mind. There are some amazing ones. So like, and it's all the things that the community has created. They've taken this this loose concept and they take it off in air, in directions that I could never in my wildest dreams imagine. And that's the coolest thing about it. So for, for example, um, you know, doing an Everesting is really hard. At, when I did my Everesting, I thought, ooh, you know, 8,000, you know, close to 9,000 meters, it's pretty close to 10. So I thought, wow, 10,000 meters, that must be sort of the upper limit of what you could potentially do in one ride. But there's people that are doing double Everestings, triple Everestings. There's a guy that's done a quadruple Everesting. We, we allow a small sleep allowance of two hours for every subsequent Everesting, which is such a like subsequent Everesting. It's such a ridiculous thing. But, um, you know, so, so those sorts of attempts are amazing. There's a guy, Jack Thompson, who did three Everestings in three days in three countries, which is, which is kind of like that, was, that was awesome, you know, finish one and get driven to the next one, rub down his legs, off he goes again, three days in a row. Um, and then there's, there's some really cool ones, like super steep ones where, you know, uh, 80 kilometers, what's that in mile? Like, is that about 50, 50 miles? Yeah, let's call it 50 miles. So the record is around 50 miles for the shortest ever seen. But you need to remember half of that's downhill, 25 miles. So that's so steep. That's yeah. like a 30. I don't know, 20 to 30% gradients uh, on this climb. So those sorts of attempts uh, are really cool. But then there'll be other ones, for example, like the, the, there was one where, um, you know, this this uh, lady out of out of Sydney uh, did an Everesting and I think it took her 40 hours. And this is without sleep. And, you know, she struggled through the whole thing. But to me, like that is on par with um, Lauren's record yesterday. Like it is so cool to think that she's able – like. They've both done the same thing in my mind. Like they've both climbed the height of Mount Everest. It's meant the same thing to both of these people. They're equally stoked. And you've got one person doing it in under 10 hours and one that's taken more than 40 hours and the stoke level is the same. It's so cool. <laughs> well, Andy, I can tell that your stoke level is going to be very is high and will remain high. And I really appreciate all that you've done to get this thing up and going. Uh, his name's Andy Van Bergen. He's the man behind Everesting. And chances are if you just kill yourself to do an Everesting attempt and submit your file. He's the guy who's going to be scrutinizing it, looking over it, pouring over it, and hopefully sending you a very nice email congratulating you on your successful uh, Everesting attempt. So Andy, thank you so much for coming on the Velo News Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, hope to see you on Amy in the whole back today too. Uh, that's going to require a little bit of training. Uh, all right, Andy. Thanks again. Thanks again.